I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and welcome to Undercurrents, the new podcast from Chatham House. Right, so welcome welcome to this inaugural podcast. Uh, Agnes, here we are in the Chatham House Media Studio. It's thrilling, it's very exciting. We are here to bring you a new Chatham House podcast series, Undercurrents. So Ben, why are we doing this? Oh, well, firstly, we both, we both work at Chatham House. Um, I work with the journal International Affairs that's published six times a year at Chatham House. And Agnes, you, you work with The World Today, which yeah. is our magazine, our current affairs magazine. And in our work at Chatham House, we come into contact with researchers working on a huge variety of topics. And so we wanted to use this podcast to bring you some of these insights and perspectives. Absolutely. So I think we are going to play the everyman and woman, and we are going to hopefully ask the questions that you might want to know. So the way this is going to work, we're going to we're going to produce two interviews every fortnight um, with Chatham House researchers. Um, and authors who have published with International Affairs or The World Today. Yeah, and we're going to be discussing issues that aren't necessarily in the headlines at the moment, but we think are really important and um, should be given a bit more airtime. So to kick us off, Agnes, who did you speak to this week? So this week I spoke to Dr Patricia Lewis, who is head of the International Security Department here at Chatham House, um, about the report that has just come out that she co-authored with um, Beza Unal, called Cybersecurity of Nuclear Weapons Systems, Threats, Vulnerabilities and Consequences. Um, it's quite a dense topic, but uh, Patricia is an absolutely amazing at explaining complex issues so that everybody can understand. That sounds ideal for me. Uh, let's have a listen. So I'm here with Dr. Patricia Lewis, who's the research director of the International Security Department at Chatham House. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us on our first podcast, Patricia. I'm so excited. Um, and we're here to talk about your new report, which you jointly authored with um, Dr. Beza Unal on cybersecurity of nuclear weapon systems. Could you give us a brief overview of what you're talking about in the report? Sure. So. I think when we think about nuclear weapons, we think about the missile and the warhead. But, of course, what is connected with all of that is all of the guidance systems, the electronics, the command and control systems, the targeting. And all of those things require some form of connectivity at some point. So, for example, to issue the command uh, from where, from, say, a um, presidential office or a prime ministerial office through to a silo or through to a submarine requires connectivity. To uh, input the target data at some point, you've had some connectivity. They are all reliant, all of these systems are completely reliant on information, data and connectivity. So each of those things are vulnerable to cyber hacks at some point in the system. So what we're worrying about in this paper is the information that a possessor of nuclear weapons has at its disposal to act on information coming into it. Is that information correct? Is the information about 
how the weapon works correct? Is the information about where to target it correct? Is the information that's coming in through uh, satellites, uh, through other types of surveillance mechanisms, is that correct? Um, has it been interfered with in any way? Could it have been? That's really where the crux of the matter lies. I think it's so interesting because so often discussions around or fears around nuclear issues, whether weapons or um, energy, tends to be very uh, physical. You know, it's about containment or the actual results of a nuclear weapon strike rather than the sort of new data-led <clears throat> cyber world that we're in. Um, and especially at the moment in the news with all these discussions of people having access to a big red button. I mean, and so this idea that other people could have access to the big red button um, is really is really interesting. So, I mean, do you think there are certain states who are more vulnerable to this than others? We don't know. We do know that the United States has been concerned about this issue for quite a long time, and that gives us more confidence in the United States. Mm -hmm. The fact that they've been talking about it in congressional reports, in uh, military discussions, etc., means that they are taking it seriously and they're ahead of the game. What worries analysts more than anything is when states say there is not a problem. So if a country says, well, we don't have to worry about that because we have separated our nuclear weapon systems from connectivity and everything's secure, go away, don't worry about it. That makes me very worried. I would rather have people aware, making sure that we're aware um, and addressing the risks as they really are than telling us that everything's okay. And what do you think states should be doing or can do to safeguard against these sort of dangers? So one of the things to really understand is the issue of connectivity. What is connected to what and how? A big mistake that's often made in military systems um, and in other big infrastructure systems uh, is the issue of what they call air gapping, which is when you separate out your sensitive system from any form of connectivity to the internet or to other networks. Now, the problem with that is that while it is possible to do that, it is also possible that there's connectivity that you do not know about. And there are many instances that we know of where people have assumed that that air gapping, as it's called, is um, robust, when in fact it's been quite vulnerable. And connectivity has occurred either sporadically or in a way that they hadn't um, fully understood. Well, one wouldn't suggest that you shouldn't try to separate out those systems. You shouldn't rely on separating out those systems or rely on its 100% invulnerability. And so to go back to the air gapping principle as a, as a layman, how does that actually work? So if you had a, say you set up a computer network mm -hmm. um, in your office, but you didn't connect it to the internet, but you only connected it to other computers in the office, right. okay. that would be a network that was then not connected to the internet. Mm -hmm. But what happens if, unknown to you, that there was a connectivity through a Wi-Fi that was connected to a vending machine that then went out and reordered Coca-Cola for your office. This has happened in a number of places that we know about, mm -hmm. and they had no idea that there was that connection. Or what happens if, on a night shift, 
somebody disobeys the rule about bringing in a memory stick or their um, you know, podcast player or whatever it is and connects through and immediately you're connected and they haven't understood. Also, in all of your equipment now, um, there's a great deal of what's called GPS dependency. So um, most of our electronics for timing purposes are connected to the global positioning networks. And so that is also a connectivity that means that you're never fully disconnected from uh, the outside world. I was going to ask you about the role that the private sector can play in this. I mean, is are they very important? Are they an added risk? So they're very important because um, a great deal of the electronics that we use in all of our systems, however um, top secret sensitive they are, um, are relying on chips and hardware that's built in the private sector. They may have developed their own systems and may have tested their own systems for these types of purposes, but there'll be other parts of the systems in the computers, etc., that in fact will be reliant on the private sector. And so the, the vulnerabilities of those systems and those that hardware and any software that goes to control those systems, of course, then is vulnerable to um, cyber attack, as is all of our computing network and so on. The private sector has a great uh, and important role to play. And this isn't only true for nuclear weapon systems. It's true for all of our devices that are connected to the Internet, what we're now calling the Internet of Things. Um, in that the supply chain and all the different pathways that we have to connect our gadgets to the internet, um, each one of those uh, components uh, is, if it's insecure, that makes the whole thing insecure. And we've seen this now. We've seen how webcams can be hacked, mm -hmm. how they can be just used in order to attack something else and so on. This, this concept of connectivity and the complexity of connectivity, it's quite hard to get your head around. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the best way to think about it is that you cannot be 100% secure in this regard. And that at least is a good starting point. And so it seems to me that obviously there's a there's a huge room still for human error. You know, this idea of somebody plugging in a USB stick by mistake. Or, and do you think technology can safeguard against that whilst also not being threatening in itself, if you said to me? Or are we always going to be slightly worried about somebody unplugging something? I think there's um, several ways to think about this. Machines and uh, the computers that drive machines can do some tasks much better than humans. But of course, they're only as good as the humans who program them and who set them up and who set up the systems and who operate the systems. We've also seen throughout history cases where machines have given us the wrong information. There's been a glitch, there's been a misinterpretation, there's been a, a, the wrong analysis, the wrong algorithms, and humans have understood that and have been able then to discount the data that's coming into them. If we rely entirely on machines doing that, we run the big risk then of um, not having the human judgment in the loop. However, of course, humans often make mistakes too. So um, this is a system that cannot be without risk and the risks are very high and the problem with nuclear weapons compared with other weapons is that you can't really make small mistakes with them no <laughs> so if you make a, a similar mistake with conventional weapons of course it's terrible and say people are killed 
and maybe a conventional weapon drops on an urban area and it's, it's devastating. But when you drop a nuclear weapon on the same area, it is 100 to 1,000 to 10,000 times more devastating. It's a huge mistake and one that changes everything and isn't easily rectified or indeed apologised for. And presumably has enormous repercussions in in every way as well. Retaliations, etc. Yes, and this is the problem with nuclear weapons per se. And it's not so much the long-term radiation consequences, which of course everybody does worry about. It's the immediate devastating impact, which is just orders of magnitude greater than conventional weaponry. And presumably it's difficult... I mean people can now react very quickly to these attacks without knowing whether or not it was purposeful or a mistake. You know, nobody's going to think, well, this was a mistake, so it's fine. Well, and also, um, if a nuclear weapon is heading towards your nuclear weapons, then you need to fire those nuclear weapons before it gets to them. And that's been one of the big instabilities through the Cold War. And it looks like we may be heading back in that direction with the new types of policies and doctrines that the nuclear weapons possessants are now going back to. Um, They're going back to some of the big instabilities of the Cold War. I was going to ask you, having having worked on this field for a while, um, are you more worried now than you have been in the past? I mean, have there been other points like this in recent history? Well, I think the Cold War was very worrying um, and um, I disagree if people say it was a stable time and I think you can look back and think, well, we got through it so it was okay, but that's not the case. There were many um, near misses, uh, either by accident or by uh, near inadvertent decisions based on false information, for example. Uh, There's the case of Stanislav Petrov, which is well known in the film, The Man Who Saved the World. There have been a number of other similar cases uh, where false information came in and a decision to act was incumbent on um, a a very small group of people and they made the decision not to act. If they'd made the other decision, they would have fired nuclear weapons based on an erroneous belief and understanding that nuclear weapons were coming at them. So when you get into cyber hacking, when you get into that manipulation of data, then you've got a very different story because the information coming in could well be self-consistent. You could well do all the checks and it could be fine. And then you find yourself in a situation where you fired your weapon, even though actually that data was false. And that's a big fear. So you have to have lots of other checks and balances in the system, of course, which delays the decision time. And do you think the biggest threat of cyber hacking comes from state actors or non-state actors? Or who, who are you most concerned about? Well, I think at this level, we're most concerned about state actors. Mm-hmm. Um, the type of capability that you would need to have to get into this or try to get into these types of systems is, is quite considerable. However, having said that... The uh, capabilities between non-state and state are narrowing and you can always get lucky, as it were. You could always hit that Achilles heel without even realising it. And we've seen now a number of instances where hackers have got into systems that they should never have been able to get into. And um, it would be foolhardy to imagine that all of those gaps have been closed. I'm going to end on asking you a cheerier question, Patricia. (laughs) 
Um, it's the beginning of 2018. It's a new year. Life may get better. Um, what are you hopeful for or excited about in your field for this year? You didn't tell me you were going to ask me that no, question. I so I think that we are heading into some very difficult and dangerous waters uh, to do with conflict. And what makes me hopeful is um, people's awareness, and especially young people. I'm very hopeful about young people who can see the world with more clarity quite often and who are wanting a future that's quite different to the past. And it could be that some of these crises focus the minds and make people understand that they need to take control of their future and act. Uh, I was very taken with the Nobel Peace Prize that went to this young group of activists called ICANN for the negotiation and the instigation of the negotiation of the Nuclear Ban Treaty last year. And this is definitely disrupting the status quo of nuclear weapons decision making and we've yet to see how it will play out but certainly I was impressed with their activism and optimism. Brilliant well thank you so much Patricia. You can read the full report at chathamhouse.org it's called Cybersecurity of Nuclear Weapons Systems Threats, Vulnerabilities and Consequences and it's, um, it's a cracking read I'd really recommend it. Okay, so now I'm joined by Indajit Pamar, who is a professor of international politics at City University, and the guest editor, alongside John Eikenbury and Doug Stokes, of a special issue of International Affairs, published in January this year, titled Ordering the World, Liberal Internationalism in Theory and Practice. And Indajit's article in that issue is The US-led liberal order, Imperialism by Another Name. Provocative stuff. Indigit, thanks very much for joining us today. I would like to begin just with this idea of the liberal international order, which is a very big term in academic circles. Um, there's a lot to it, but I wondered if you could just run us through where that term comes from and how it developed and what it kind of means in the real world. Okay, thank you. Um, you're right, it is, a, it is a big term, and it I think it refers really to a kind of historically constructed system of uh, treaties and alliances uh, as well as relationships between nations, particularly between the United States and Britain, who were the architects of that post-1945 uh, liberal international order. And its principal driving forces were, I would say, probably two. Uh, one was the 1930s and the whole kind of uh, economic crisis, uh, massive unemployment and the rise of fascism and so on which threatened, which basically led to war. And so unemployment and other economic problems and the rise of kind of alternatives to liberalism, uh, which were threatening and dangerous and eventually led to war. The idea was to try to establish an international system which would have institutions which would try to ameliorate any of those kinds of tendencies, to, to fight against aggression, to collaborate uh, between peace-loving countries and so on. So the United Nations was a key part of that whole process. The Bretton Woods system of IMF and the World Bank as a part of the financial structure, the idea being that you keep liquidity and development funds and reconstruction funds going such that people don't get into a position in their own countries where they begin to turn to 
what were those dangerous ideologies? And obviously in the 30s you had the Soviet Union and communism and the communist revolution as well. So I think the international system was conceived, therefore, as a means by which nations, the world had become smaller, the nations could collaborate with each other, nations should be represented in big institutions, people should have an outlet and a say, uh, and their domestic systems ought to be responsive to what happened in the 1930s. That is, a kind of a mass unemployment should not come again, and full employment and other kinds of policies to stimulate the economy ought to go. And that kind of internationalization really of what you could call the New Deal in the United States in the 1930s was one of the kind of underlying forms of thought behind building that world structure. So effectively it was a it was an international order led by mainly the United States but also with Britain very closely involved as an architect uh, and the idea was or at least the promoted idea was that it was going to be institutions of peace of prosperity stability and the prevention of aggression. Thanks very much. At the moment, a major focus is this idea that this order is in crisis, and I'd like to come to that later. But I just wondered if you could um, give me some some further detail on how and when this functioned well. When when was it working, and for how long, and when did it stop working? The answers to these questions are kind of contested, but I think what you could say, if there was a golden age of the liberal international order, then probably most of its proponents would argue, probably up until the 1960s and into the 1970s. But even there you have Vietnam puncturing elements of that, and the UN effectively excluded by the United States from considering that problem in any kind of serious way. But what you could argue is that because of its human rights charter, the kind of a trusteeship and kind of decolonizing sort of overall philosophy, the idea of all nations being equal and equally represented within the General Assembly of the United Nations. I think that was, and then you get the kind of decolonization where our countries of Asia and Africa by the mid-50s into the 60s become represented there. There was a kind of moment and an opening which suggested the equality of nations. You can bring your grievances to this chamber. You can publicize your cause, such as the Palestinian cause or the anti-apartheid cause, or even with the case of Malcolm X, black nationalism, where human rights violations, he was arguing, were a global problem, not just an American domestic one. So I think to some extent you could say that in that first 20 years, perhaps, there was that sort of golden age, which its proponents would argue uh, uh, existed, but uh, always contested, however, I would say, uh, even during that period. Obviously, you your title says the US-led liberal order. And I wondered whether this liberal international order is the legitimate thing that could exist independent of the US or has existed independent of the US or involving the US but not led by it, right. or whether it is just a tool for American interests overseas. I don't think there's any American president who's not wished to use the United Nations or the multilateral system or the system of international treaties and so on which constitutes a liberal international order there's none of them who haven't tried to maximize advantage, uh, but many have been sort of more enlightened, if you like, in terms of their self-interest. And they've seen that a thriving international system is one which is actually very congenial at certain times to American power and influence itself. But they've always been complaining about burden sharing. Uh, you look at NATO, for example, there's always been this issue that people aren't, other countries are not paying their the price, the cost of uh, policing the world in their but I think that there's always been that case. Um, but 
the same time, this international system, if you like, if you see it as a series of a web of networks, those networks are between states, and each state has a kind of, if you like, a foreign policy elite or an establishment of some form, which has its civil society components as well. What we have is, it's a US-constructed order, an Anglo-US-constructed order, uh, which has still great institutional power for the United States within it, in the IMF, the World Bank, and the UN, and so on. But it has also been de-Americanized to a large extent. And that, I would say, is probably since the 1970s. Because all of those other countries have come to fruition in some form, into a greater level of global influence, within that system. That's a challenge to American authority within the system, not a revolutionary threat to the system itself. Okay, yeah. So, um, so could you tell me more about um, about your argument uh, that actually we should be focusing on the domestic response to this system rather than external challenges to it? Well, I think that both both have to be dealt with in different ways. But I would say that the fundamental challenge to the international order is really at a domestic level and in part it, it goes all the way back to the construction of that order and the kind of the domestic settlement which was in the US and in Britain as well and many other countries too which was based around not going back to the 1930s uh, a whole generation which had fought in World War II to try to build a better world and then the New Deal settlement if you like privileged certain sections of the American population which is quite large but is mainly well-organized trade unions, organized labor, white working men who are largely skilled. They got quite a good position and they got higher standards of living. That order also excluded unskilled white work, white male workers as well as female workers and uh, African-Americans and other minorities too. And that began to be untenable by the 1960s when you get the rise of the counterculture and movement for women's liberation, women's rights and for African you know, civil rights and so on and so forth, so that effectively what you get is a kind of group of people who who had quite advantaged lives in the 1950s in a kind of golden age, who then began to see an erosion of their positions uh, as civil rights legislation went through, who began to shift from the Democratic Party into the Republican Party, and by the time of Ronald Reagan, are effectively called Reagan Democrats, and they are buying the kind of more conservative program which is a deeply racialized kind of program as well. Uh, unfortunately, over the decades, that program doesn't deliver very much because it's all about small government and low taxes. It doesn't deliver very much for them materially, although they are enjoying the wages of a kind of uh, racial identity and gender identity of a much more traditional kind, but they're not getting very many material benefits from it. And by the time effectively globalization really takes off in the late 80s and into the 1990s. Um, the erosion of their conditions, the rise of working women, uh, which is necessary for maintaining any level of standard of living, is becoming more and more difficult. And I think that's given rise to a sort of xenophobia and a, a populist nationalism, which is blaming increasingly international, whether it's other states with uh, trade deals or whether it's other people coming in like refugees or immigrants, or whether it's racial minorities are not really considered in this sort of identity part of the American nation. Yeah. 
I'd like to turn now to the current US administration and whether you think this is actually a fundamental change as it's presented as a kind of, oh my goodness, what's going on? Trump is is changing, he's rewriting all these norms, he's going against all of this accepted um, traditional practice in terms of diplomacy but also domestic policy. Is he a departure or is he more of the same but in a more brash manner? Does Donald Trump represent a fundamental shift I think there are certain certain things we can trace from his inaugural address through the speech in September at the United Nations General Assembly through to the national security strategy just released in December. And I think that is a greater level of nationalism overall, that each nation should stand up for itself, be less bound by the international international rules and extract as much as possible from the international system and go toward bilateral relationships where international regimes don't work anymore and thereby play to that populist rhetoric. Whether or not that delivers any actual material gain or not is a different question. But it does seem to be that it's a much more hyped version of conservative nationalism. It wants to extract as much as possible and use power to defend what is considered to be the most vital of interests as opposed to a kind of a hegemonic service to the international system itself. You wrote a column at the end of 2016, maybe at the start of 2017, saying that um, saying that 2016 had been a kind of annus mirabilis and actually it's not a crisis. And I just wondered with that, with that view, what are you hopeful for in 2018? Do you, do you see, do you see that uh, things are likely to get worse in the particular topics that we've been discussing? Um, or do you actually think 2018 could be a year of resurgence? I took a bit of flack for that 2016 <laughs> column, which was written on Boxing Day 2016 when uh, there was a large amount of depression around. And it was really an attempt to look back at that year and try to look at what was the positive. And the positives really were that you have a galvanised electorate, which is effectively very critical of the domestic order and its sort of power structures and power distributions, and really voting for candidates who are outside of the mainstream, each of which was saying that the way in which the system was working was not delivering the goods and so on, and that internationally there were issues too. That is to say, it seemed to capture an imagination of, of at the popular level. And it seemed to be in a very positive kind of direction as far as I, in my own view. And the thing about 2017 was that obviously this administration has had to, has had, has gone back on many of the promises they made about curbing, draining the swamp and curbing Wall Street excess and so on. And it's become a very traditional Republican administration, mainly at home. Um, but on the other hand, what it has done, which I would say is the most positive thing, is galvanized resistances of all forms at the kind of popular level. That is to say, probably from the 1960s and 70s, this is probably the most uh, heightened period in which there is massive levels of political mobilization, not just on social media, but actually a level of the street. So you had the Women's March on, on January the 20th or 21st in 2017. They have another one planned on the same, you know, to mark that anniversary. You've got people who are blockading airports for the Muslim ban in last January, February. You've got high school students. You've got people at every level against environmental regulation, deregulation, corporations and the kind of things that they're doing. And that, it seems to me that there's alternative kind of candidates being selected by the kind of Sanders coalition. Mm. 
uh, people who have never been involved in politics, bipartisan groups who, who don't care whether you're a registered Republican or Democrat, if you haven't stood in politics before, where you want to represent your community on a school board or the local council or the congressional constituency, those are the kind of things I think are the most positive. And I think they are the ones which are likely to be able to block or create the environment within which it's much more difficult for the more kind of right-wing policies that the Trump administration is putting forward. Because the Democratic Party as a party, unfortunately, one of its first acts after losing the last election was to open the Democratic National Committee was to open its coffers to Wall Street donations, which had been suspended by the Obama administration previously. And unfortunately, I do not believe that's a vehicle for that kind of protest. Congressional, yes, but not at the level of this one. So I would say that's a really big positive thing. And I think that is probably the way in which uh, the kind of political environment and climate will be reshaped. Uh, and I think political possibilities may well be thereby opened. So I would say... Pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. <laughs> Indijit Palmer, thanks very much Thank for joining you very us. Much. Thanks then to Indijit for joining us there and for finding some crumbs of comfort on which to end the episode. As I mentioned, Indijit co-edited the January issue of International Affairs, which brings together a range of perspectives on the crisis of the liberal world order. Find the whole issue online at chathamhouse.org and Indijit's analysis can also be found on Twitter at US Empire. And that's all we've got time for in this inaugural episode. Thanks very much for joining us. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes or subscribe on whichever platform you use for discovering podcasts. And follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House. Both pieces we have discussed today are linked below and we'll be back in two weeks' time with some new interviews. In the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>